Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, June 1st, 2012. Now, I know this is going to sound like, well, heresy, but we're going to do Friday Light on Friday. <laughs> it used to be, I used to call it Friday Light, but I kept moving the day, so it was, I just changed it to the Light Edition. Yeah, yeah, I was being too postmodern when I called it Friday Light, but played it on Tuesday. But its it, original intent was to do it on Fridays. At least that was what I intended. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work it is politically incorrect. It has a tendency to step on toes, but it's not politically correct, incorrect for the sake of being politically incorrect. It's about confronting people, maybe even you, uh, with false doctrine, false belief, and driving you back to God's word and bringing you to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins and a right reading and a right understanding of God's word. Now, as one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith, our light edition on a weekly basis is designed to specifically tap, tackle a singular topic. It doesn't mean that it's light in the in, in fluffy. It just means that it's a singular topic. And uh, you know, on, uh, during our light editions, I always turn the microphone over to somebody else who's done the study and done the research and presented the lecture that I play for you here to listen to. So uh, today we're going to be listening to uh, Phil Johnson as he continues his series on a survey of historic heresies uh, that Christianity has faced in early on. And we're going to be listening to his lecture regarding Gnosticism and the heresy of the Gnostics. And so this is a heresy we still have to deal with today. It's morphed into something that you may not readily recognize as Gnosticism, but nonetheless, there's a, there's a large Gnostic contingent within the visible church. And, uh, well, they're just as heretical as, as the Gnostics of Gnosticism's past. See if that made any sense. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson and his lecture on the historical heresy known as Gnosticism. Many of you have heard about Gnostics, you know about Gnosticism, at least you know the term, but my experience is that very few Christians have more than just a vague idea about what this is, and in fact, I have to admit that I learned an awful lot about Gnosticism just studying uh, for today. Um, so uh, this is great stuff, and I'm excited about it, I hope you find it exciting as well. Somebody who does not attend Grace Life heard that I was teaching this series on ancient heresies and asked me, 
Why would you do that, he says. What, what good is there in discussing dead people's errors? Well, that's a good question. And some of you may be asking the same question. Here's my answer. The people who devised these errors might be dead, but the errors themselves are not. And every one of the errors that we're going to be discussing in this brief series is alive and well today in some form. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, a, fam a familiar passage, Solomon wrote this. He said, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. And the answer is, no. There is nothing new under the sun, and even in the area of heresy. It was philosopher George Santayana who made the famous quote that people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And that is certainly true in church history, and history proves that over and over again. There's no new heresy under the sun. And people who don't understand the history of doctrine in the church are doomed to fall into the same errors that have plagued the church again and again throughout her history. So that's why it's important for us to study these things. In fact, virtually every false cult and major false doctrine that we see today has a very close relationship to one of these five heresies. Five? Yeah. I had to count them. <laughs> Virtually every false religion that you encounter today, all the people that come and knock on your door and all that, they have strong ties to one, of these, one or more of these five heresies. If we can understand these five issues and really understand why they're wrong and how to refute them biblically, then we'll be a step up in learning how to deal with the heresies that we confront today. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the heresy of the Judaizers. And I didn't really ever finish that, but I wanted to make this point, and that is that Roman Catholicism, modern Roman Catholicism, is virtually the same error. What you see in the Judaizers is almost exactly the same false doctrine that was at work in the Judaizers, the same thing that you see in modern Roman Catholicism. Catholicism is a return to old covenant forms, external rituals, all the same things that the Judaizers were concerned with. Catholicism is also legalistic in this sense. Catholicism teaches that there is some external action on the part of the believer that is essential for a right standing before God. That is legalism. If you think there's something you have to do in order to merit a right standing with God, that's legalistic. That's what the Judaizers taught. That's what modern Roman Catholicism teaches. So in a sense, you could say that modern Roman Catholicism is the monstrous tree that sprang from the acorn of Judaism. Of the Judaizers, I should say. And the Judaizers' heresy in the, modern, in the early church is the seed of Roman Catholicism in the modern church. Now today we turn our attention to Gnosticism. Gnosticism, uh, the thing that concerns us this morning, is at the opposite end of the spectrum from the heresy of the Judaizers. Think of it like this. The legalism of the Judaizers involved the synthesis of Judaism and Christianity. They were trying to put Old Testament Judaism and Christianity together, and that resulted in legalism. Gnosticism, on the other hand, is an attempt to blend pagan philosophy with Christianity. The Judaizers were clinging to the past. The Gnostics represent a radical break with the past. 
And so in many ways, the error of the Gnostics is exactly the opposite of what we studied last time, the Judaizer's heresy. And this is what always happens, isn't it? As the church, the church kind of swings from one extreme to the other. When the false teaching of the Judaizers met with resistance, and when people began to refute it biblically, it was as if Satan just pushed the pendulum to the opposite extreme. And the result was Gnosticism. Now I'm going to give you a view of Gnosticism that, that's kind of with a very wide-angle lens. This heresy is so diverse and so complex that it's notoriously difficult to define. In fact, there were many, many varieties of Gnosticism. You could read, in fact, there's a, there, do you know there is an encyclopedia of Gnosticism that categorizes all the different varieties there were? And sometimes uh, the Gnostic heresies even competed kind of against one another. The modern day equivalent of ancient Gnosticism is the New Age movement. So what you see in the New Age movement today is really kind of a mirror of ancient Gnosticism. This very diverse group of different, conf sometimes conflicting teachings that all really tend towards the same end. That's how Gnosticism was, that's how the New Age movement is. They're sort of bound together by a few ideas that they hold in common. And interestingly enough, Gnosticism and the New Age movement have much in common. We'll see that as we go. Both are complex, not simple. Both suggest to us, and this is the key issue, that divine wisdom is hidden in a mystery that's revealed only to enlightened people. And it's that idea that gives Gnosticism its name. This, this word Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And here is the central idea of all forms of Gnosticism. Gnostics believe that the key to saving truth lies in a hidden knowledge that goes beyond what is revealed to us in Scripture. If you, according to a Gnostic, if you want the truth, it's hidden. And it's, it's in a key... The key that unlocks what we do know is this extra knowledge that really is beyond Scripture. That's Gnosticism. According to Gnosticism, salvation is a question of possessing this secret knowledge. And what is the secret knowledge? Well, that depends on which Gnostic you talk to, and that's where the Gnostics differ from one another. And that's why Gnosticism is so difficult to pin down, because if we got into talking about all the different varieties of Gnosticism, we could spend hours, and all that would do is confuse you. So for our purposes here this morning, it's sufficient just to understand this, that the main heresy that underlies all Gnosticism is this idea that truth is a mystery whose meaning must be sought in some kind of truth that's beyond what's revealed to us in Scripture. That's the central, fundamental flaw of the Gnostic heresy, that truth is a mystery and you have to find the key to it somewhere outside Scripture. In, in his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, John MacArthur characterizes modern psychology as a kind of neo-Gnosticism. Why? Because psychology teaches that the real key to helping people solve their spiritual and emotional problems is the key to it all lies in some extra-biblical understanding of the human condition that only trained psychologists or trained therapists are privy to. So the average person, you see, can't adequately counsel people or help them with their problems because they're not priv privy 
to the gnosis, the extra key to knowledge. Psychology pretty much teaches that. And you can't adequately then counsel people unless you are enlightened. That's a form of Gnosticism, isn't it? And it's this idea of enlightenment, or gnosis, as it was called, that's the distinguishing element of all forms of Gnosticism. They all held forth the promise of some secret key to the truths of the universe that lay beyond Scripture. It could only be revealed to you by someone who himself was enlightened. And so the Gnostics dispensed their secret knowledge only to select followers. It became a very elite kind of religion. Now, the Christian varieties of Gnosticism didn't really come into full form until sometime in the second century. I mentioned last time that the Judaizers' legalism was the first big heresy that assaulted the church. Gnosticism came hard on its heels. And by the middle of the second century, Gnosticism was was huge in the church. This was a huge threat. It had infused itself into the church worldwide. And we see evidence of it in church history in every part of the church around the world. It was amazing how quickly this infused itself into the church and took over. If you're familiar with names like Irenaeus, the church father, Tertullian, Hippolytus, these men all were known for their polemic writings against the errors of the Gnostics. And it's from their writings that we really learn much of what the Gnostics taught in the church. Because a lot of the Gnostic writings... Uh, we don't have access to, but we can read what Irenaeus wrote to refute the errors of the Gnostics, and from that we discern what the errors of the Gnostics were. Later Gnosticism left a huge body of, of written uh, documents, and we'll get into that in, in just a minute. But Gnosticism had this ability to mutate into new forms, and so when one version of Gnosticism would begin to decline, another would arise to take its place with just slightly different teachings or some minor correction or whatever. And so Gnosticism, even though it was repeatedly again and again refuted and definitively debunked, it would, it would simply change itself a little bit and arise as a new kind of heresy. And because of that, it posed a very strong threat to the church for several centuries. Now, as I already mentioned, Gnosticism was essentially pagan. It, what it is is an attempt to blend pagan, pagan thought with uh, Christian theology. So it started in paganism. It did not begin inside the church. And the earliest strains of Gnosticism actually precede Christianity. And we're going to see this this morning. Gnostic ideas were already flourishing in both Jewish and pagan thought at the time of Christ. There's no doubt that Christ and the apostles at some points confronted incipient versions of the Gnostic heresy. Even Christ would have been aware of this and he would have encountered it in his ministry. Christian Gnosticism, though, was a later development. And this was nothing more than pagan philosophy's attempt to conquer the church by assimilation. In other words, Gnosticism represents an effort by the powers of darkness to destroy the church by absorbing the church into the world system. And this again is precisely what modern-day postmodernism and the New Age movement are attempting to do. So this Gnosticism is a very timely subject. While I was preparing for this, I, I was reading a book that was 100 years old. It's a book on historical theology written by a uh, one of my favorite Reformed authors. And he was going through the history of conflict in the church, and he had a chapter where he dealt with Gnosticism. And this 19th century 
church historian, treated Gnosticism as if it were an ancient novelty that in his age, the 19th century, was virtually extinct. He said that, the, in fact, he said that the facts about what Gnostics believed were pretty much only of academic interest in his age. I wonder what he would think if he came back today. What he'd see is that Gnosticism is more alive than ever today, and it's flourishing everywhere. It's seen an incredible revival. If you have access, if you have online access to the World Wide Web, go to one of the large search engines and do a search for the words Gnosis or Gnostic. I did that yesterday, and I found more than 5,000 web pages devoted to promoting Gnosticism. Incredible. Did you know there's even a rock band called Gnosis? I don't know rock music, but I don't know how well known they are, but I found this on the World Wide Web. I checked their website. It says this, and, it, and this is the heading on their website. Gnosis is the power of receiving and understanding direct revelation of God and the transformation of the whole man into a spiritual being by contact with Him. That's a pretty good summary of what the Gnostics believe. In fact, this website has the band's name, Gnosis, in bold block letters, followed by, right underneath it, the dictionary definition for the word Gnosis. Gnosis is, quote, esoteric knowledge of spiritual truth held by the ancient Gnostics to be essential to salvation, unquote. Again, that's right on the money. This is coming from a modern rock band. And that's exactly what the ancient Gnostics believed. So what we're seeing today is a very strong comeback from, uh, of this false doctrine. And I'm convinced it's not merely a fad. I found another huge website called the Gnosis Archive. And it includes an online library of hundreds of ancient Gnostic writings, especially these heretical works that were considered sacred scripture to the Gnostics. They're all online. In fact, at this website, there are audio files you can download. And it says you can listen to these lectures. This is a quote from their webpage. Lectures selected from the Gnostic Society's famous Friday lecture series. You can download that and listen to it. There's information on how to join Gnostic religious groups and on and on and on. The point is this. Gnosticism has made a comeback in our generation from the brink of extinction. And it is now a major force. If you want proof of how pervasive modern Gnosticism is, there's an excellent book in the book shack by Peter Jones entitled, The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back. And Jones, in his book, demonstrates how feminism and the New Age movement, these two huge forces in the world today, are closely tied to ancient Gnosticism. Jones says, in fact, that feminism and the New Age movement represent a full-fledged revival of the ancient Gnostic heresy. And what we see today, the form of Gnosticism we see today, is virtually unchanged from the heresies that assaulted the church in the second and third centuries. These, all these old heresies are coming back. That's not only true, but I believe, it, really, it's an understatement. Modern Gnosticism may already actually wield more power and influence on the church today than the ancient heresy ever did, even at its peak. In fact, I believe that the revival of Gnosticism in our generation represents what is probably one of the, maybe the most serious threat to the, that's facing the church of the next generation. This is going to become a huge issue in the next 20 years. Here's why. Because Christians today 
are more ignorant of the scriptures than any generation in church history. And the Gnostic heresy is regaining its strength at just the time when contemporary evangelicalism is losing the will to fight battles over doctrine. You see this everywhere. Postmodernism has created this tolerant climate where Gnosticism is going to thrive. Because our society values pluralism and tolerance as the highest virtues. You're not allowed to stand up and say, that's error, that's wrong. And you can't fight Gnosticism unless you refute it. See, in today's society, you can advocate any position you like, but you do not dare suggest that someone else is wrong or you're going to be shouted down on all sides. Gnosticism is going to run wild in an environment like this, and there's no way to stop it if, if the church is unwilling to fight for the truth. History proves this. When Gnosticism first assaulted the church, Christianity was actually threatened. And Christianity only survived because of a handful of very strong men, such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, these sorts of guys, who were willing to fight for sound doctrine, and not just fight for it, but even lay down their lives for it. Some of these men died because they fought for the truth. And in order to endure in the decades to come, true believers in Christ are going to have to strengthen themselves in doctrine. We, we have to gain the courage to confront these anti-Christian ideas that threaten the heart of our faith and stand up and say they're wrong. We desperately need people today like Tertullian, who can speak out with a clear voice against these errors and refute them from the scriptures. Now, I want to highlight three major errors that are common to almost all forms of Gnosticism. And I'll show you from scripture why these are dangerous. This is my main outline, these three errors. These are the three aspects of Gnosticism we're going to examine. Are you ready? Dualism, my wife's going to say, should have had another overhead here. Dualism, syncretism, and docetism. Now, before you give a collective groan, I realize that all three of those terms may be new to some of you, so let me define them and spell them for you. And don't turn me off. I promise that I'm not going to make this overly academic. And I also promise to show you how all of this relates to the Scriptures and how you can use it today. In fact, I intend to refute Gnosticism using just the Scriptures. And I'd say an understanding of these concepts, the reason I bring this up is not to impress you with new words, but because I think an understanding of these concepts and, and the dangers they pose to us and our church today will help you understand the New Testament as you read it with a whole new appreciation. This, this is what the apostles were actually dealing with. The same kind of thing we are today. Incipient forms of these errors. And here are the three terms. Dualism. That's spelled D-U-A-L-I-S-M. That's the easy one. Dualism. This is the idea that everything in the universe is reducible to two fundamental realities. I'll just define it for now and tell you what's wrong with it in a minute. You may say, well, what's wrong with that? It doesn't sound so dangerous. The idea that everything in the universe is reducible to two fundamental realities. I'll show you why that's dangerous in a minute. Second, syncretism, spelled S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. I'll do it again. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. This is the merging of two different systems of belief. 
pretty simple definition. Syncretism is when you take two different systems of belief and try to merge them. And third, docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. This is a heresy that claimed that Christ only appeared to be human. Docetism. Now let's look at each of these errors individually. First, dualism. You can think of dualism as sort of the religion of Star Wars. To the dualist, all reality is explainable by two fundamental competing principles, the force and the dark side of the force. Or in Chinese dualism, the principles are yin and yang. Gnosticism sees a dualism between mind and matter, or spirit and matter. The Gnostic thinks that everything in the universe is reducible to these two competing principles, mind and matter, sometimes flesh and spirit, sometimes the material world versus the spirit world, but it's all the same idea. You get it? Spirit versus matter. The dualist sees these two fundamentally opposite forces that hold each other in a kind of eternal tension. Evil and good, therefore, are nothing but words to describe these two eternal forces. One's evil, one's good. There's the force and the dark side of the force. And the problem with dualism is that it, this defines all the moral significance out of evil. Do you see it? Evil becomes just as necessary as good. If evil is an eternal cosmic force, then it's something to be tolerated and understood, and even used. It's not thought of as an enemy that can ever be destroyed. That's the danger of dualism. Dualism, therefore, obliterates the true significance of evil. Do you see that? I said something once that was critical of dualism. At once before, I think, when I was teaching here, and somebody wrote me this note and said this. Isn't Christianity also dualistic? Don't we understand all of history as a cosmic conflict between good and evil or between God and Satan? Isn't, by your definition, isn't that a form of dualism? That's a good question because a lot of people do think like that. But that's not how we should think as Christians. Christians don't believe that evil is an eternal pr principle. We don't believe that Satan is the equivalent of God, but the opposite of God. That's not how we think of Satan. Evil... In Christianity, according to Scripture, evil is a condition into which creation has fallen and from which creation will be redeemed. In the Christian worldview, evil is not an eternal force on par with God himself. God and Satan are not equal opposites. The devil is a created being and he is always subordinate to God. So true Christianity is not dualistic, it's monistic. That means when you go back to the beginning of all things, there's only one eternal principle, God. That's monism. And this monism is taught in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And even the truth of the Trinity doesn't alter Christianity's basic monism. We believe that God is three persons in one essential being. That's why Colossians 1.17 says this about Christ. He is before all things... And by him, all things consist. That teaches monism. In other words, true Christianity is incompatible with any form of dualism. And history reveals that everybody who's ever tried to mix 
dualism and Christianity has fallen into serious heresy, starting with the Gnostics. Gnostic dualism led to a very peculiar view of God. And I want to explain it to you. This is, listen to this now because this is essential to understanding the Gnostics. They believed that God was a supreme being who was totally unknowable. This is the absolute God. Unknowable. He's spirit and he's so far off, you cannot know him, you cannot begin to know him. This unknowable God was too lofty to ever create a universe out of matter because matter is essentially evil. So the God, the absolute God of Gnosticism, the unknowable one, couldn't possibly be the creator. But this absolute God spawned a series of what they called emanations or eons. I know this sounds technical, but it's really simple if you just follow it. He spawned these eons, which were, which were beings that spun off from him related to his attributes. One of them was a feminine, godlike spirit called Sophia. Sound familiar? This is the same goddess that modern feminism worships, Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. And Sophia was a creation of the Gnostic heresy. Sophia was this, this eon, this emanation from God, representing God's wisdom. And there was a series of these sorts of emanations. Some, some say as few as 30, some say as many as 325. All these emanations, these godlike beings that descended from the absolute unknowable God. The first emanation spun off from the second, and the second spun off from the third, and so on. You get the, you get the idea. They, they began to give birth to each other, these emanations. Until you get to a being they call the Demiurge. D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E. Demiurge. Now, the Demiurge was this godlike being who was so far removed from the absolute God that he was actually able to create this universe out of matter. The Demiurge, then, is the creator God. One popular Gnostic view was this, that Sophia wished to give birth to a creature just like herself. And she attempted to do this, but she found out that her offspring was imperfect, and so she threw it aside. It was different from the form of what she wanted. And this aborted offspring of Sophia became the Demiurge. That was one of the most popular Gnostic views. And in fact, you'll see it in a minute. I'm going to read to you from a modern Gnostic source that takes exactly that view. In Gnosticism, then, it was this demiurge, this, this thing that generated from several different emanations that descended from God. Not the real God, but this demiurge is the creator of the universe. And, and he, he erred greatly in doing so, according to the Gnostics, because he made it out of matter. And matter is the very essence of evil. And in the midst of this material creation, which is made out of matter that's all evil, the demiurge placed man. And, and this is what makes this all significant. Man retained a spark of the divine, just a spark of the divine. You've heard that expression before, right? We all have just a, we have a bit of divine spark in us. That's Gnostic. That's what Gnosticism taught. And this, according to the Gnostics, is how the world as we know it got started. Now, that's a crash course in Gnostic theology, but remember the key ideas, and you'll see the significance of them in a moment. So you've got this unknowable supreme being, and then a lesser being called the Demiurge, who in an act of cosmic mischief creates the universe out of matter, which is inherently evil, and into this universe he places humanity, and humanity retains a spark of the divine. That's Gnostic cosmology. That's the essential Gnostic worldview. Do you see the dualism in it? 
Immaterial realities are seen as good, material things are evil. In other words, the whole material universe is essentially evil, except for the spark of divinity that's left in mankind. Now, that's, that's my overview of Gnostic cosmology. That's as technical as we're going to get this morning. But that shows why we say Gnosticism is dualistic. Now, I'm going to move on to the second error of the Gnostics, syncretism. Syncretism is the fusing of two different or even opposite systems of belief. I mentioned earlier that Gnostic tendencies existed prior to the Christian era. Let me set the historical stage for you. This is fascinating. At the time of Christ, during Christ's lifetime, there lived a man in Alexandria, Egypt, named Philo. You've heard that name? How many of you ever heard of Philo? Not, not the dog, but the philosopher. <laughs> Philo, you've heard of him? Philo was a Jewish philosopher. He was born about 20 B.C., and he lived uh, until about 50 A.D. So he was an exact contemporary of Christ and the apostles. But he lived in Egypt, so it's very unlikely that he, he ever had any exposure to Christ or the teachings of Christ or the disciples. Possible, I suppose, but it's very unlikely. Philo was what we call a Hellenistic Jew. That means he had abandoned most of Hebrew culture and he had absorbed the Greek way of life. He was a Hellenistic Jew. And this Hellenism is reflected in Philo's philosophy. He studied the writings of Plato, for example. And he found a way to blend Greek philosophy with Judaism. Philo developed a system of allegorical interpretation that enabled him to find support in the Old Testament for the major ideas in Greek philosophy. So he read the New Testament and he reinterpreted it in a way that had the Old Testament teaching Greek philosophy. In other words, he reinterpreted the Old Testament and blended Judaism with Greek philosophy in this syncretistic religion that he developed. This was his kind of syncretism, and it resulted in a whole new religion. Philo's religion is remarkable. Remember now, as far as we know, Philo had no exposure to the Christian teachings. He probably died before any of the New Testament was written. But here was the theology that Philo de devised from his blend of Greek wisdom and the Jewish scriptures. Listen to this, and this is really remarkable. Philo taught that God is a heavenly father who transcends everything. And he taught that there was this other being whom Philo called the Lagos. That's the Greek word that we find in John chapter 1, the Lagos. And the Lagos, according to Philo, acts as an intermediary between God and his creation. According to Philo, it was the Lagos who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And all those appearances of the angel of the Lord in the New Testament, Philo said, that's the Lagos. And the Logos was a subordinate figure who, according to Philo, mediated between God and man. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, from a Christian perspective, it's hard not to marvel at how much truth we can see in Philo's system. In fact, I read an article once by a man who claimed that Philo's religion contained all the major essential doctrines of Christianity. In other words, he was saying that Philo discovered Christian truth on his own from the Old Testament without any exposure to or knowledge of Christ. But I think that's a wrong view of Philo. Philo was anything but a Christian. He was far from being a Christian. In fact, there's enough deadly error in Philo's thinking to make it seriously, fatally wrong. 
Philo's notion of the logos actually has more in common with the Gnostic concept of the demiurge than with the Christ of Scripture. And what we really see in Philo, what we see at work here is that it's proof that Gnostic thinking had already been planted, the seeds of it had already been planted in the time of Christ. What Philo was doing is really a precursor to what the Gnostics did. What developed into full-blown Gnosticism by the second century was already there in embryonic form even while Christ was on the earth and Philo is the proof of that. There's another important similarity between Philo and the Gnostics and that is his tendency towards syncretism. What Philo was doing with Judaism, blending the scriptures with secular philosophy, is exactly how Gnosticism arose. Syncretism is based on the idea that wisdom, the wisdom of this world is compatible with the revealed truth of Scripture. Do you see the danger in that? If you start with the presupposition that this world's wisdom is compatible with the wisdom of Scripture, then you won't permit the revealed truth of Scripture to act as a corrective to wrong ideas. History proves this again and again. What you'll do instead is adapt your interpretation of Scripture to make it fit with the worldly wisdom. That's what Philo was doing. That's what the Gnostics did. And there's no better illustration of this than the modern feminist movement, which is closely related to Gnosticism. You see, current worldly wisdom says that there should be no role differences between men and women. Men and women should have equal authority. That's contemporary wisdom. That's secular wisdom. But 1 Timothy... Chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes this, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, feminist Gnosticism insists on reinterpreting that verse and others like it in the Scriptures, explaining it away in order to make Scripture fit what secular wisdom currently teaches. That's why we have evangelical feminism. What it really is, is an, is an attempt to adapt the teachings of Scripture to make them fit with current worldly wisdom. That's how syncretism inevitably corrupts the Scriptures. The worldly ideas ultimately take precedence over the truth of Scripture. That's the danger of it. Now, Gnosticism was born through exactly that kind of syncretism. Remember how I described the Gnostic concept of God? Remember there's the God, the Demiurge, and the creation, and the whole thing. All of that that I went through. I hope you kept that in your mind. Here's how Gnosticism arose. Beginning in the first century, there were people in the church who were trying to fit together Christian truth with these Gnostic ideas. And here's the scheme they came up with. The Creator God was seen as the Demiurge. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is Jehovah God in the Old Testament. And He was thought to be at odds with the supreme, absolute, unknowable God. This God of the Old Testament was therefore thought of as imperfect and even antagonistic to what is truly spiritual. And the Gnostics taught that Christ came as an emissary of the true God, this unknowable supreme being. Christ was sent by Him to reconcile this supreme being, this unknowable one, with these men who still had the spark of divinity in them. These were the people who had the spark of divinity they called the Gnosis, you see. So the Gnostics said these people with the spark of divinity... Christ was sent to reconcile them with this unknowable God. And the God of the Old Testament, he's bad. And they just dispensed with him. And in Gnostic terms, this is the way they spoke of it, what Christ did was come to earth to lead us, to wake us up from the sleep of our ignorance. Give us the true light of the gnosis, the enlightenment. 
That was the Gnostic teaching. And that's how Gnosticism, which began as a holy pagan doctrine, was adapted to Christianity, fused with Christianity, so that the Christian scriptures were often used as support for Gnosticism. And the same kind of syncretism that spawned Gnosticism enabled this evil doctrine, once it got a foothold in, in the church, because it was inherently syncretistic, it was able to sort of morph into a host of heresies in the second and third and fourth centuries. In fact, the main reason Gnosticism was so hard to defeat is that when one sect would be refuted from the scriptures and nearly vanquished, this, this, it would begin to assimilate new doctrines, it would transmogrify into a whole new cult, and then it would begin to draw a fresh new generation of people into, into its error. The modern New Age movement has shown expertise with exactly the same kind of syncretism. That's what's going on today with the New Age movement. You can refute one little corner of it, but it simply morphs into another error and begins to draw a whole new group of people in. That's syncretism. That's why syncretism is so dangerous. And that brings us to the third of these three errors, docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem, to seem. And the Gnostics taught that Christ only appeared to be manifest in the flesh. He only seemed to be human. Different Gnostics explained this different ways, but they all denied the incarnation in the same significant sense. Remember that Gnostic dualism taught that matter was inherently evil. Well, that being the case, Gnosticism had to explain how it was that Christ, who was good, could come in a human body, which is matter. Some said the body was just a phantom. Others said his spirit inhabited the spirit of a, another man. And, and this body of a man actually housed the spirit of Christ, but remained distinct from him. So Jesus was the man on whom the Christ spirit descended. And some Gnostics taught that Christ didn't actually even enter the body of Jesus until uh, his baptism, and then this Christ spirit departed from him before the crucifixion. Some of the more bizarre forms of uh, Gnosticism even taught that prior to the crucifixion, Jesus and Judas changed places. Isn't that weird? All of these theories had this in common. They were flat denials of the reality of the Incarnation. They were antithetical to the apostolic message that Christ came in the flesh. And they were overt attacks on the person of Christ. And there was wave after wave of this kind of thing that assaulted the early church. That's why, uh, because of the prevalence of this kind of Gnosticism in the early church, it's why when you read church history, you'll see that the controversies that absorbed the church in those early years all had to do with the person of Christ. His nature, his deity, the reality of the incarnation. These were the ideas that Gnosticism attacked. That's what was under attack. See, this heresy, Gnosticism, turned Christ into a phantom. Something unreal, something inhuman. Gnosticism, while masquerading as Christianity, actually hit at the very heart of the Christian faith. It was the worst kind of heresy Satan could devise. 
Now, I promise to give you a brief refutation of Gnosticism from Scripture. There are passages throughout the New Testament that were written explicitly to refute these ideas that were fundamental to Gnosticism. For example, listen to Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. I'll just read it to you. This is a clear warning from Paul against Gnostic tendencies. And it's also a refutation of Docetism. Paul writes this, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you see, does that, does that verse take on a whole new depth to you now? I mean, you see that in the light of what the Gnostics were teaching, and you understand exactly what Paul was dealing with here. He was warning them against the syncretism with philosophies, he was warning them against this docetism with the, with the wrong view of Christ, and he was also warning them against the dualism that was inherent in Gnosticism. All of those are debunked in this one passage. But to give you the best short refutation of Gnosticism, in, in just a short space, I want to ask you to turn to 1 John. 1 John. And we're just going to breeze through this passage. It is obvious from some of the arguments John was using in this epistle that he was confronting a form of Gnosticism among the people that he was writing to. This is the earliest, this is the earliest appearance of these Gnostic heresies in the church, but it's amazing that they cropped up so early. And when you realize that this epistle targets Gnostic tendencies, suddenly certain aspects of it take on a much more meaning. Let me just take you through it quickly and show you some of the places where the Apostle John confronts these aspects of Gnosticism. We start with verse 1. Remember that the Gnostics taught that the God of the Old Testament was a sort of lesser God, the Demiurge, this mischievous creator who came as the offspring of the real God. But John refutes that in his very first line. He refers to Jesus as that which was from the beginning emphasizing the eternal deity of Christ. He wasn't just an eon. He wasn't just, a, he wasn't just an emanation from the real God. He wasn't just the aborted offspring of Sophia. He was that which was from the beginning. And this emphasizes his eternal deity. This is the same way John begins his gospel, isn't it? With an affirmation that Christ is not a newcomer to the scene, but he is the one who was with God and who is God from the beginning. Notice also how John debunks docetism here by referring to Christ, verse 2, as that which we have heard, or verse 1 rather, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He continues, verse 2, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show to you that, e that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. What's his point? He's telling them that he was an eyewitness to Christ, he handled him. Christ was no phantom. And wh what about the Gnostic teaching that wisdom is a hidden mystery that's kept secret from all but those who are enlightened? Look what John says in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. Verse 4, And these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you. See, he's underscoring the fact that there is no secrecy here. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing reserved for the elite alone. But the fullness of the message was proclaimed to all. 
There's no, no room for Gnosticism in the true Christian message. Now think for a minute about the Gnostic concept of the Demiurge. This being, the Demiurge, was virtually a bad guy. He was tainted. He was corrupted to some degree by evil because he was the one who fashioned this universe out of pure evil, supposedly evil creation. But look what John says about this in verse 5. He says, this is essential to the message he proclaimed that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Debunking the Gnostic idea of this demiurge who was tainted. The Gnostic dualism between flesh and spirit often led people to a bizarre kind of antinomianism where they, they would behave and do things in any way they wanted to because they figured if the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, then it really doesn't matter what we do in the flesh. The flesh is evil anyway. And the Gnostics claimed that they could sin freely in the flesh and still have spiritual fellowship with God. See, John debunks that teaching in verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness... We lie and do not the truth. In chapter 2, verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. To answer the Gnostic idea that matter is inherently evil, the Apostle John gives this description of what is evil in this world. What is evil in this world? Is it matter? Is it the matter? Is it... Is it Physical reality that constitutes evil? Not according to the Apostle John. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. His description of the evil in this world deals with realities that are distinctly immaterial. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, and he's speaking of all the evil that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. He's not teaching there that evil is matter or the matter is evil, but just the opposite. He's saying that the basic realities of evil are all immaterial realities. And as for the Gnostic doctrine that true enlightenment is something that can only be conferred on initiates by special teachers, people who are themselves enlightened, notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, You have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. There's not any secret truth left to be taught that you need to be given by some enlightened person because you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. You have access to all the truth. Now he's not saying that people confuse this verse because they take it out of the historical context. John wasn't teaching that we don't need to listen to teachers. Obviously, we don't believe that or I wouldn't be up here. He wasn't saying that you can't learn anything from other people. You should just go to the scriptures alone. Otherwise, our bookshack wouldn't be selling commentaries. People rip this verse out of its context and don't understand what John was dealing with here. He was dealing with people who were teaching that there was this higher truth, this real truth, that you could only learn from a human teacher. And he was saying that's not true. You know all things because the Holy Spirit has revealed them. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit reveals them to us is through the teaching of gifted pastors and men like that. that isn't, John wasn't arguing against that. He was arguing against the Gnostic notion that there was a secret truth somewhere. Look, he goes on in verse 27. He expands on this idea. The anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. 
He's saying you have this anointing. It's going to stay with you. It teaches you all things. Essentially, he's saying it's the Holy Spirit who enlightens you, not some Gnostic teacher. You don't need to go to some guru to be enlightened. You have the Holy Spirit, and He enlightens you through His Word. That's the, that's the essential idea. Now, what about this common Gnostic idea that a being called Christ merely inhabited the, man, the body of a man named Jesus? John deals with that. This is really at the heart of this epistle, I think. Chapter 2, verse 22. He labels this Gnostic view anti-Christian. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. See, that's Gnosticism he's dealing with. Chapter 3, verse 5. Debunks the notion that a physical body is sinful in and of itself. It says this about Christ. You know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. So the physical body can't be evil because Christ was manifested in a physical body and he had no sin. Chapter 4, these are, these are absolutely crucial ones. These are the ones that really nail it down. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. These hit Gnosticism head on. Listen to this. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard it should come, and even now already it is in the world. What is the spirit of Antichrist that was going to come? It was this Gnostic heresy. That's what he's saying. It's already in the world. And what does it teach? That Jesus didn't come in the flesh. That it was just a manifestation, either a phantom, or he inhabited a fleshly body for a temporary period of time. John says, anybody that denies the incarnation, and he's, he's hitting Gnosticism head on, he's Antichrist. This is anti-Christian doctrine. And what he writes there is utterly in incompatible with any form of Gnostic doctrine. In fact, there is very little doubt that early Gnosticism is the heresy that he wrote this epistle to confront. He was tackling... Gnosticism, The beginnings of it, because it flourished and grew and bloomed in the 2nd and 3rd centuries to something even bigger, but that was the beginning of it. Gnosticism is alive today, too, and in several subtle forms. I mentioned already the New Age movement, the feminist movement, not-so-subtle forms of Gnosticism, and just raw Gnosticism. If you know what to look for, you can see Gnostic tendencies in much of modern thought. Postmodernism is a kind of Gnosticism. Rarely does Gnosticism come out and just show itself fully for what it is. But occasionally, you'll see a modern Gnosticism that is an exact mirror of the ancient heresy. I found a, a Gnostic track on the internet. I printed it out, and I want to read portions of it to you. What did I do with it? Is it back there? Oh, well, forget it. Forget it. I won't read it to you. I'll just tell you about it. This guy in this tract... Darlene, do you have that? It's probably back there with the uh, Sabbath stuff then. Anyway, this guy in this tract goes through all his stuff about Sophia, the aborted, the aborted thing that she spawned off, the Demiurge. The Demiurge, it says, is the creator. It's exactly what I described to you. Precisely. And this guy ends this tract with an invitation to people who want to join... A Gnostic religion. 
He gives you the information, the phone number, where you can do it. This is alive and well and thriving today, and it's only going to get stronger in the kind of intellectual climate that we live in. It's something you will confront, and it's something that, for the Lord's sake, we need to be strengthened and taught and well-grounded in sound doctrine in order to refute. If we're not familiar with this heresy, if we don't understand how to refute it from Scripture, it's going to have a worse impact on the church in our generation than it did on the early church. Well, that's it. And uh, next week we'll talk a bit about the Arians. The Arians you deal with all the time. They come to your door in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses. So we'll be talking a bit about the deity of Christ and the modern Arian heresy, Jehovah's Witnesses. Let me just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the clarity with which your word confronts error. And I pray that you'd give us each the courage to stand for the truth, to fight against error, even if it costs us. Even if it costs us, like these men in the early church, their lives. I pray that you'd give us the commitment to truth to be willing to pay that price, if that's what you call us to. But even in, in our lives here and now, where we're not being threatened with death or persecution for the truth, may we have the strength to stand for it nonetheless. May we fight for your truth against error. And as we see the encroachment of error on the, truth, on the church today, I pray that you would make us that much more alert to the issues of the truth, that we would develop a passion for truth and a desire and a hunger to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.